called TAD to remodel my place. Said I wanted it to be that kind of place. Knee deep in the Renault, sinking in our fight. Other shonky builders waking me up at night. And Adam plays the boss man. He listens to the customer. Don't you remember? He built this kitchen. He built this kitchen with TAD. We built this kitchen. We built this kitchen with TAD. We built this kitchen. We built this kitchen with TAD. Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. We are broadcasting to you live on Radio Karam from the lands of the mighty Eastern Kulin Nation. The Karam Karam Swamp, where we are here tonight, is unceded Aboriginal land. My conversation partner tonight is Professor Kerry Lyon, a founding director of Lyons, an award-winning Melbourne-based architectural practice and professor of architecture at RMIT University. He was national president of the Australian Institute of Architects in 2006-2007 and has also been a board member of the Green Building Council of Australia, as well as being a current member of the Victorian Design Review Panel. He has been awarded a Life Fellowship of the Australian Institute of Architects and the Presidential Medal from the American Institute of Architects. Lyons represented Australia at the Venice Architecture Biennale in 2023, 2014, 2008 and 2000. The practice's work has been extensively published nationally and internationally, including a major monograph by Thames and Hudson called More, The Architecture of Lyons, 1996 to 2011. Tonight our conversation will mostly focus on the Dandenong Municipal Building and Civic Square, completed almost a decade ago, now back in 2014. Just like the Springvale Community Hub, which we have previously discussed in conversation with James Wilson on this program, the landscape architects and collaborators on the Civic Precinct for the City of Greater Dandenong were Rush Wright Associates. The project includes a civic square and multi-level building that incorporates council chambers, a regional library, council administration offices, future growth areas for council offices, car parking and retail. The precinct was designed to align with the revitalising Central Dandenong strategy, a project focused on the transformation of the community and was a five-star Green Star design. In 2015, the building received the award for new public architecture from the Australian Institute of Architects Victorian Chapter, the Planning Institute of Australia Great Place Award and a commendation for urban design large-scale projects also from the PIA. 
the Dandenong Municipal Building and the people who use it were also recently featured in the latest instalment of Melbourne Now, a retrospective survey exhibition of art, design and architecture from the last decade at NGV Australia. Welcome to the program, Kerry. Thanks, Alana. That's quite an introduction. I'm really just proud to call myself an architect and happy to have this chat with you. That's wonderful. We're, we're very glad to, to have you on and talk about mostly today another local building that's really just up the road from where we are. It's not at all far to travel to our neighbours to the north in the city of Greater Dandenong. And, but before I jump in, there's a question I like to ask all my guests and that's, what's your earliest memory of a building or place? Wow, great question. Earliest memory. Well, you may know that I'm crazily part of an intergenerational family of architects. Four generations now, is that right? Four generations. So I'm in the third generation. So my father was an architect. My two of my uncles were architects, but more importantly, my grandfather was an architect. So I reckon my first memory would be, honestly, as a young kid, being babysat by him and being taught how to draw perspectives of gable roofs with chimneys sticking out the top of it. Details. So that's a bit weird. Details we definitely don't do anymore. <laughs> no, indeed. Not but ex- in terms of buildings, like probably, if I was thinking about it, it's, yeah, my father was an architect, you know, did the classic design the family home, you know, one of those 19, late 1960s single-storey houses with little landscape courtyards. Has the house still stayed in the family? No, but it's still there. I do walk past occasionally thinking someone's going to knock it over because it's such a modest thing and build some three-storey building in its place, but so far so good. So I have very strong memories of that, growing up in that. Did you have much choice whether or not to become an architect? (laughs) People often ask me that, yeah. I... It's a good question. I, if I was being honest, I would say I didn't really decide I was going to be an architect until third or fourth year of university. You know, I was probably felt like I went through the motions a little bit initially. And the thing that got me excited, you probably have done the same thing, is when you travel yes. and look at buildings like I did a long nine months in the United States in 1979. Saw some great buildings and like that just completely fired me up and... Was there one particular one that just changed the path for you? Yeah, probably, well, the work of Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, sort of went into that in a bit of depth and that whole Chicago school, so-called Prairie School of Architects were all spectacular. An older architect called Louis Kahn, you probably know his work. Of course. Everyone, every architecture student knows Louis Kahn. Yeah. Saw some spectacular buildings by him. But it was the year of the so-called post modernists so I looked at a lot of work by Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown and Michael Graves and Richard Meyer and names that will be familiar to at least some of your listeners so that got me intellectually engaged and I've been going at a pace reasonable pace ever since. What was the biggest inspiration or or maybe what was the most formative inspiration or, or mentor that sort of set set into motion your ideas about architecture and later lines? Yeah, I feel like the the significant mentoring for me 
was not an individual. It was the idea of learning from your peers. Like I think everyone talks about that these days, how important it is to learn from your peers. Um, but my education at Melbourne University in the semis was pretty basic. You know, you were taught by good architects. A lot of them emigres from Europe, Eastern Europe, from the you know the ravages of the war, who were very schooled in the form fires function concept, and they taught you that dogmatically. So separate to that, there was like a bunch of students who were discovering this idea of talking more adventurously about architecture in that sort of postmodern, so-called postmodern conversation. And of course, when you're in third year, you would have been perhaps the same when you were studying. In third year, you look up to final years, and even though they're now the same generation at the time, they were, you know, they were like a different generation to me. So they were doing different things in architecture, and I learned a lot from them. And then that became that group as the so-called half-time club, which you may yes. I was just going to ask if that's that's who, the, who they that. all became became a, a regular gathering in a Melbourne pub to discuss architecture. Yeah, very. There's stories of the various levels of passion that occurred during the half-time club, which yeah, like I was the kid sitting in the front row, dutifully taking minutes, but yeah, you know, the conversations were really powerful. You know, got everyone excited about what architecture could be, and that's probably my that's probably my mentor experience it's from my peers. And I think I think we still within our practice, and even myself personally, you know, you're still doing it with your peers as much as anything, rather than being the older figure with wise words. It's a very important, and interesting way of creating a, a generative method that. I don't think most people think about that you can have conversations much like we do on this show that bring ideas into reality because the worlds create the words create worlds. And it seems like that's what the halftime club was doing and then people had to just go home and draw it really. Yeah, I think it was it was that, but it's also the idea of a critical culture that you don't just do it because someone else has done it before, that you do ask hard questions about why things are being done the way they are and be more speculative. Like, architecture could be this. Why is it that over there? Like, let's talk about why it couldn't be something over there and head in that direction. Which all good creative work does, searching for those possibilities, searching for the future. Yeah. And I think people are perhaps more comfortable with art doing that and less so... They think architecture is more of a science or could be more predictable or rigid, but especially alliance is searching for those possibilities. Yeah, I think fundamentally architecture is it's a constructed knowledge. It's not something that's like a perfect set of ideas that are just always there. You know, it's a constant process of speculating, testing through buildings, you know, um, to discover if something works or not. Collaborating. Collaborating, well. yep. And Very y- powerful. And you've come up with some interesting procurement models, actually, where you're working with other architecture firms to, to bring about large, large university precincts like Melbourne Uni recently or Rush Wright on the Dandenong Municipal Building, which we're going to talk about tonight. Yep. We're much, much closer collaborators than just landscape consultants. Yeah, well, it's a... 
that started from one project which we did at RMIT University. In fact, New Academic Street. Yeah, and before that we did a, a project which if any of your listeners are RMIT students will know is Building 80 on uh, Swanson Street. And we did that project within the practice, just on our own within the practice, with an idea that it wouldn't be, it would be interesting if we could do a single building that somehow conveyed the urbanity, the diversity, the complexity of the city, which RMIT is obviously a part of, in a single building. And we sort of did that pretty successfully. But our own critique, you know, looking at the way we do our work as well, if we're doing another project rather than us trying to, from a single practice, add in that idea of diversity and complexity, hey, why don't we actually get a bunch of other interesting practices who share a similar kind of collaborative methodology to work with us and simply from that process you automatically get an idea of diversity of opinions, diversity of architectural interests and all that parlays out into diversity of Outcomes. architectural form and experience. So, And since that time we've done it a few times. And It's all about maximising ideas. Of course, isn't it? And at the mention of Building 80, some very excellent news in architecture this week, which I don't often share on the program, but it's well long, long overdue that Maggie Edmund has been recognised alongside Peter Corrigan for the Ar- Architects Medal for yeah. Building 80 just just this week. No, that's uh, uh, spectacular news. So she is doing a talk next week, actually. So so Edmund and Corrigan, if, if people listening... No, Swanson Street, on the one side of the street you have so-called Story Hall and Building 8. Building 8 is designed by Edmund and Corrigan. They did a lot of very significant projects in the 80s and 90s. Inappropriately at the time, only Peter Corrigan was awarded the gold medal, I think maybe 20 years ago, even though Maggie you know, was an equal contributor to the practice and in many respects ran the business of the practice. Um, so it's a redress, an important redress, and it's happening around the world and happened also in America two very, or three years ago. Very, very important. And they're, they're beloved architects really in the local community because just up the road, up Edith Vale Road, is Keysborough, Keysborough Church of the yeah, Resurrection of and the whole community housing and building developments that were done around there, um, which I hope to tee up a conversation perhaps for next year's program about because that was so, so well-loved and so important and still regularly used. So, Yeah, that's a fantastic connection to right, where con- we are. Exactly, a connection right back here to near, near into the city, city of Kingston. Well, I, I want to ask about the main ideas and the big ideas, and we've discussed with listeners on the show that architecture is all about ideas. So what are some of the big ideas that went into the Dandenong Municipal Building Project? Yeah, so we started on that project maybe 10 years ago. I think we were talking just before we came on air. It was 2015. Uh, So we probably started designing it in 2010, 2011. And we're probably not the sort of architects that just arrive with a big idea and certainly try and not repeat the same big idea over successive projects. You want to go in to a project, especially a project like that, which is for the community and be good listeners and be a bit subtle about you know, what the aspirations are for the project. So 
I'm not. Um, I'm not in any way squibbing your challenge to subtle. nominate, no, n- so, nominate a big more. idea, but it is like. Say more about subtle because there's this school of thought that I, I don't think stacks up anymore, or it's at least dangerous that architecture or, bu- or buildings and design should speak for themselves. Yeah, well, subtle would be subtle listening. So it's a community project. So what is the community in Daniel? You know, it's an extraordinary, diverse community. I can't remember the numbers, but there's like 75 birth nations represented within the within the municipality and English is the first language, is the minority in the community. So, you know, we were afforded the opportunity to at least meet with many of the community groups. You know, there's a big Afghani population, um, more recently from Africa, Ethiopia and Sudanese community. There's a little India, little India uh, in Dandenong as well and just trying to understand and listen subtly to what their interest in the project would be would be a good example. So when we interacted with them, even though we came with, oh, we'd really love to do this multicultural project, you know, what would that be like in architectural terms? They basically said, look, we know how to maintain our own cultures where we've come from. What we really want you to do is just to give us an Australian building, oh. whatever that is. So there was a challenge. The whole profession's still trying to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, no, right. What is an Australian We're here, we're here to have an Australian experience because we've emigrated. Like, what? what is that? So we couldn't have arrived with that as a starting point without good listening to what was being put in front of us. So that would be one example of subtlety. Hmm. Very important. Kay Gamble wrote in her review of the project in 2015 for Architecture AU, while the orange seating planty units seem a bit beamed in, and I think listeners, she means they've dropped in from space, I understood that this is a matter of personal bias when I saw photos of the opening. This is a community that does colour. Yeah, I, I don't remember that review, but you know, this is one of the weird bits of magic being an architect, you know, that you literally face the proverbial blank sheet of paper for a larger project and then you conceptualise it, you wrangle it with your clients, you know, in a good way to get them to um, say that it matches their aspirations, which is what we're always trying to do. And then you wrangle with the builder. Often it's tough to get something built, but at the end, literally in the space of a day, a project goes from being in the control of a contractor and just full of workers to being completely in the control of the community. And that's always, for an architect, or certainly for me, that's the most exciting moment as an architect. So Dan, I'm going to be a good example. The opening, uh, I, I, I don't even know if the council invited the community to dress in their traditional costumes and dress, but... They must have because everybody turned up from all corners of the globe in their traditional uh, traditional dress with dancing ceremonies all in a public square literally designed to accommodate that's incredible <laughs> these sorts of events and community activities so yeah that was that was spectacular totally spectacular 
do you have any favourite moments from that process of handover and those initial reactions? Any, any conversations you can recall? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of them would be to do with, I think in your introduction you talked about a little bit about the project. So uh, the project came about because two decades ago state government said there's too many local councils, we're going to amalgamate some into larger councils. So the city of Great Dandenong is the old Springvale Council and Dandenong Council combined. But when they did that, they were in lots of different crazy locations and... You know, the idea that they were a single organisation just didn't flow through to the way they operated. So the commission was to put them all into a single building, uh, two libraries. Uh, I know you've spoken previously about the Springvale Library. So the brief was 600 council staff, a community library, Daniel Library branch, and community space. So some of the really interesting conversations were about the library, you know, what is it again? What is a community library? What does it do? And the library staff, they were fantastic. Uh, you know, right from the get go, they said, well, it's not really about lending books anymore. It's a community space. Um, and the term they used was, it's, we would like it to be the living room of the city, which is a powerful, you know, you were saying before about using good words to, it's suggest ideas like a living room for the city. It's very uh, powerful. It's very true for community centres and libraries for especially supporting migrant communities who are maybe living in quite small accommodation or even public housing dependent. They have somewhere air-conditioned, clean, safe, roomy to go. Yeah, well, it <coughs> turned out that um, even though it was not part of our brief, uh, the, the Daniel Library is the go-to place for um, asylum seeker refugees once they get their provisional visa status as a resource sender but all the way through we're always painted a fantastic picture of what the community how the community might use the library which is kids from recent immigrant kids school kids would come to the library after school do their homework the family would arrive later in the afternoon the younger kids the parents use the public space outside the library and then uh, all head off to their um, to their housing, you know, wherever it was in the local area. And that proved to be exactly what happened. You know, there's still a, an amazing dynamic of use by um, all ages in the community, all immigrant communities, old, call them old, Dandenongites, um, you know, that maybe come out of the settler tradition of the market town, which is what it was between the market town between Melbourne and uh, Gippsland. Mm, that's really lovely. And it's, it's very much true. These spaces are so beloved, still so many years on, often with students and hugely, hugely, hugely popular. That's a very big organisational change, though, for a council to be amalgamated, 600 employees. How did the process deal with that side of things? Were Lions and the architects involved? Was there a, a bit of a co-design during the return briefing or how was that all treated? Uh, great question. So <clears throat> there was yeah, collaboration, co-design with the council Council or so, as you would know, in a council there's the political wing 
of uh, councillors who are all incredible and diverse and, as you would expect, in a, an elected council. Have to represent the community, of yeah, course. Yeah, 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 like an amazing, amazing diverse group of people. And then there's the staff. Uh, you know, part of our brief, without getting into the, too much of the boring stuff, was how the council could deliver its services well. So traditionally, you know, you go to one part of a building for your building permit, another for your planning permit, another to pay your rates, and another to pay your library fines. So the big change was the idea that you could try and put all of those services that community wants to engage with in more of a single location. So you could pretty much cover a community's needs in a single area. Uh, you know, what was called at the time the one-stop shop, which is a pretty terrible title for it, but, you know, the way councils deliver their services and deliver them well uh, was a key part of the project, uh, including, you know, the library as a service, delivering services, community services out of the out of the library. So it was, uh, it was complicated. We like our complicated jobs, Alana. Yes. No job too complicated. For the big and juicy ones, especially <laughs> with lots and lots and lots and lots of lots of zeros and lots of lots of public benefit. That, yep. I mean, that's why I love public work because the 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 opportunity to create a good outcome multiplies infinitely through. It's not a single person or a single family experience. Yeah, and Danny Don was an exceptional project for that because it was not only a building, but a part of our commission was this idea of a public civic space so it's not that often uh, you know we've been fortunate in our practice on a few occasions to be able to design public spaces uh, and it was unusual to do that with the building for the local council so that was a that was a great process and interesting outcome and again as a little side story at the end of the project when it was completed they did a community competition for naming the Civic Square. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're going, oh, yeah, that's going to be interesting. So the most votes went to Harmony Square. Oh. Which is corny but also cool, you know. Like exactly. You think what's happening, well, then around the world and now around the world. Uh, we've got to be grateful we live in a, an extraordinary democracy that uh, public spaces are still, public spaces, community spaces are still... Loved and used and necessary. Loved and used and used well. Like that's, that community space just gets absolutely flogged with festivals and events and that's uh, exciting. With some of the larrikin culture in Australia, that naming could have gone very wrong. So I think it's really telling of the earnestness and love that communities have for those places and their buildings. And it's very much true that people look after public buildings once we build it for them and make it real. Oh, yes, I think that's so true. Uh, we, we have we mustn't hold this fear for the lowest common denominator that someone is somehow is going to be ruined or damaged because people do treat buildings with respect. Well, I think it's just reciprocal. So if you design buildings which show respect into a community, then our experience for decades has been communities will do the same thing back. Yeah. I mean, I can remember even years ago doing university buildings or TAFE colleges and the standard paradigm was in a TAFE college, you had to have vinyl floors, you could hose it down and moulded plastic chairs. And we said, hey, why does it need to be like that? You know, like, let's give something back to students to make their 
training, learning environments, more interesting, more hospitable. Oh, no, they're going to get wrecked, you know, going to get wrecked. Never happened. I hate that. I always hate when conversations it is go reci- that Because it is reciprocal. Yeah, absolutely. It really grinds my gears. I guess I'm a raging optimist because you have to be as an architect sometimes. And I always get quite frustrated when I – and it happens all the time, doesn't it? We always go in circles. We always get a good outcome. But you, you hear that, that the lack of faith sometimes people have in their own users and their own community. Yeah. The people are generally always good when you're given the chance. Ah, completely. 100%. Why, and this may seem like a bit of an obvious question, but why is it so important to have a strong, bold, exciting civic architecture, especially for a building that uh, is co-locating these services that um, has a public facility but also the, the council that is essentially an office building? Well, what is architecture about? You know, it's about building, helping build a society, um, building a, helping nurture a culture. So we're very blessed in Australia with a incredible culture, uh, notwithstanding the recent referendum. We don't need to go there. Uh, within the community and like the multicultural community uh, is astonishingly part of everyone's Australian experience. So what can buildings do <laughs> to build places that nurture that and make it stronger, better, more interesting like that is what good architecture does. And I've been around long enough in Melbourne to remember what Melbourne was like in the 70s and 80s and it wasn't that great. You know, it really wasn't that great. Nobody and lived there. That's before postcode yeah, 3000. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, very few public buildings. I mean, Victorian era public buildings. So you think what, well, good government thinking, I'd be honest, good strategy combined with good architects and good design has totally transformed Melbourne. Totally transformed Melbourne. And so that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's an amazing thing. Mm. You just can't assume that it's there, like it actually gets created. That's the thing. Yeah, it's a decision. Everything yeah. is a design decision, as we keep saying. It's um, it's nothing's nothing's a given, and it's certainly not an accident. No, no. Speaking of strategy, I wanted to ask, what was the procurement model or contract type that was used for, on this project? On Dan, you know? Yeah, you're laughing at me, Kerry. Listeners know that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Alana's nerdy uh, procurement um, exactly. angle. Oh, yeah. It is. It is because I think it's important to have conversations about what kind of decisions we make even before we put pen to paper? Yeah, so there's two issues. There's procurement of design Mm. and procurement of the contract, the builder, Mm. construction. So to do the first one uh, on that project, there was not a design competition. But uh, from memory, a bit back in time, the four or five architects that were shortlisted were asked to put at least some proposition forward about how they would engage with the project because it was an important project. So going back with a little bit of background, uh, in the 90s, Dandenong, the centre of Dandenong was not great. I mean, it was pretty sick. You know, the vacancy rates were high. And so 
with government. I can't remember which one it was, initiated a program called Revitalising Dandenong. It was official government policy. And in fact, the government acquired, and in many instances compulsorily acquired, a huge tract of land between what used to be Princess Highway, now known as Lonsdale Street, all the way through to the station and basically erased the buildings that were on those sites and then said, well, we will redevelop this from a government perspective to revitalise Dandenong. So they invested money in the station, uh, Dandenong Station. They invested money on the main street called Lonsdale Street, which was done by BKK Architects, really fantastic urban design uh, project. They invested in a central energy plant, which is a district plant, which is very unusual, 10 or 12, 10 or 12 years ago. And then the state government built their office building, uh, which houses like tax offices, I can't remember. And so this new project for Dandenong was within that within that con- strategic context. So they wanted architects that would respond to that strategic context. So there was a process to get uh, architects appointed. You know, we were obviously very happy to be appointed. And then the procurement on the contracting side. Uh, have you, Lana, have you seriously engaged with your listeners on the idea of design we, and construct innovation? We have. We've dabbled. We've dabbled. <laughs> Good for you. 24 weeks, not, not in an immense detail. It's first six months of this show, but we do dabble. So for that project, uh, as is now pretty conventional, we put the project, we had the builder, builders price the project. when I mean, we weren't quite finished on the normal technical documentation, but close to finished. And then from that, a builder was appointed who were called Wattpack. Um, <coughs> they've changed the name a couple of times in the last few years. And uh, they built it. And we were, as is said, novated to that contractor. So we start working with a client to formulate the design. And then after this point, we start working with the builder to manage the design through the construction process. And yeah, it went, went well. Clearly, it went well. Like the projects, of course, yeah, you know, finished well. And ten years later, the phone's not ringing with issues. And it wasn't all too common then. It was it was starting to be used, but not as regular as Novation is at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, it was probably on the ten years ago. It was on the uptake. Uh, I don't think any architect in town at the moment would be doing a major project without a similar kind of process. It's all about trying to protect the design intent, really, as you're as you're on site and you're trying to build it, which leads me to some of my design curiosity questions. Go for your life. One man. of the bits that, of course, looking at the pictures, the jumps out of the trees at the entry. It's metal trees out of great big cylindrical brown columns, almost like Lego cartoon, just assembled out yeah. and then the canopy is in the same red as, as the street trees. So say, say more about, say more about, about, that. about yeah. that colonnade. But then it forms like quite a civic colonnade under that, under that canopy. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Just uh, going back in my memory banks, but I, I feel like that project was, Dandenong was probably before there was a more call it mature conversation about the idea of designing on country, even though for that project we also had a group called Material Thinking, which is Professor Paul Carter 
and Ed Carter. Um, they're like urbanists and do urban propositions and have worked with our practice on a number of occasions and they're really interesting uh, people. So they got the task of going off and doing a bit of consulting with the community as well about ideas, narratives that might go into the project and you know, they picked up an idea which we thought was really interesting which is traditionally around that site there were a lot of fabric shops and the fabric shops increasingly reflected the diversity of the countries from which people had emigrated into Australia and in particular to be living in Dandenong. So they developed an idea of, as a kind of narrative template, the idea of stitching these fab- different bits of fabric from around the world together. And uh, in fact, if you're in a drone or running a drone above the Dandenong Square, there's a pattern in it which is like the idea of stitching together these very distinctive fabrics from around the world. I was just going to ask because it's, it's very granular. You, you yeah. get that, that gritty, feathery, textury feeling to it. But I didn't answer your question. About, so, the, about the trees. <laughs> about the trees, yeah. So like we did our own research and, you know, the Constantine was like this market town between the city and Gippsland. Uh, there were lots of... Well, I have to say, settler stories about the river red gums and the forests that were in Dandenong. So we kind of did them as a memory of the landscape, the trees that were previously in that in, the, in that area. In the one of the photos by Peter Bennett's beautiful set of photographs, it, you noticed perhaps that part of the building is an office and it's an employee, but when you look down the colonnade, you see the trees. And then the facade turns to green and there's a cutout that's a window and someone's sitting within it. I thought, oh, from that angle, it looks like the facade turns into the tree canopy and you plonk the council worker into a tree house. <laughs> I thought that was quite funny. I don't mind that reading. That's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, I don't know how grumpy or how good of a day that council worker is, but they're, <laughs> they're in a tree house. and they're, They should they're be like happy. Each- they should be happy. They've got the best seat in the house. They're looking out over the public square and... Seeing the toing and froing of people using that space. How was how are some of the design elements in the project encouraging staff and members of council to be making better decisions? In an architectural sense, I think about it with my memories back to the Scottish Parliament when I was lucky to travel one of those bits of inspiration by Enrique Morales, one of his last built great masterpieces yeah. before he died. And you get this view out onto Holyrood Hills and I think you can't make a bad decision in this parliament. Like something about the natural context and the sighting and the atmosphere within that building weighs onto your conscious conscience yeah. in a better way. Not like Gothic cathedrals that make you feel guilty, but in, the, in a bit of Open hope. Open your mind. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we were probably not in a position to be quite so profoundly aspirational, Alana, you know, because uh, a lot of the people in council, because they would come from Dandenong and Springvale, we're in pretty terrible environments, you know, really poor, substandard, portable, portable buildings like construction huts. So pretty much a new building was always going to be a big step up for them. But I think the main thing was the idea that 600 people, which had previously been in five or six different locations for the first time, would be in a single building and single space. 
as an example uh, in terms of the way a council culture can work. Previously, community services, which delivers, well, what you would expect community services to deliver, would be entirely separate from the engineering <laughs> traffic department, you know, like separate tribes, effectively. So by putting them in the same building, you're effectively inviting them to understand what the whole culture of a council serving a community is and not just be stuck in their so-called silo. And so the, even from a workplace organisational point of view, a building like that allows all of those different groups that are working within the council to be together, to connect, to share meeting rooms, share communal space, share place for a cup of tea and talk about what they're doing. And even though there's no metric for measuring that, uh, the reality is that that does have a profound and positive effect on the way people working um, will think about how they're serving the community. When I chatted to the staff at Springvale, they were definitely really happy. They, they loved their building and they loved working there. Turning up every day, yeah. And, you know, as architects, you're just trying to, within those workplaces, just give great amenity so you're never far away from windows, you've got good natural light, um, all the things that are basic and taken as a given, but you try and do, try and do well how's at the how, same time. How's how we design libraries or even more commercial and office building type environments um, changed since Dan Nong? It's been a decade now. Yeah, great question. Uh, probably for for council, you know, for those community services, increasingly like it or loathe it, a trend to online digital services delivery. So pretty much the same for organisations, universities, hospitals. I mean, obviously it's not all just digital services in a hospital, but... The idea that face-to-face um, -face contact is diminishing because so much of the transactional side of things can happen online. So, therefore, as an architect, what do you do about that? You know, is it just like, well, everyone's hiding away and don't really need to connect with real people because everything can be everything transactional can be done in a digital form. So, you know, the the challenge is still how to make good places for people, for communities, for... It's the same as the digital transformation fear with libraries. So not that people thought that it was going to be completely irrelevant, that books were going to be digitised, everything on the iPad, audio books, that's it. And yet these spaces are more important than ever. Yeah, that's a great point. So actually on Dandenong, their library when we started designing was getting 9,000 visitations a week. Uh, within a week of opening, the new library is getting 32,000 oh, visitations. There's the but data. But the number of books being loaned is still... On a, I'm using my hands to do a negative graph, Alana, is diminishing. So it's not like everyone's turning up eager to borrow a book. People are turning up because there's other offers, you know, which is uh, resources for people in the community that are struggling with literacy, as an example, or uh, people from around the world accessing print media from their home countries. 
now uh, artist studios and mu- podcasting studios and uh, media and laser cutting and 3D printing is super popular at libraries. Yeah, all that sort of all those sorts of things. So, yeah, it's that building a community. A library is a sort of key space. So I know it sounds a bit nebulous. It's when true, you say it, but it is. It is totally true. You know that that's the the library is a is a um, place to build. You know, so called build community capital. Because the number of books always decreases. They you start a process. They tell you how many thousands of books they have, and at the very least, two thirds, if not three quarters, are going to be done by the time gone and are passed on, um, passed off by the time the building opens. And yeah. then the librarians look around and they say, well, we have all this empty space and we need to program it. Yeah, and, and it. program it in a good way. Even without digressing into university libraries, exactly the same thing. Universities can keep, as council libraries will too, keep metrics on what books get borrowed and, and what don't. And at universities... Engineering, business, all things that's easily put onto digital format, like books are just disappearing. But art folios, like when you studied architecture and you want to actually have a book with, beautiful big book with pictures you can sit and take your time over, the use of those is still high. So when we renovated RMIT's central library as part of that project we spoke about earlier called New Academic Street, the library got twice as big in the renovation but the book collection got cut in half and Mm. will continue to get cut in half so what is all that other space for that space is for students and students are like the community of a university for students to study to do things together with their peers um you know to access technology uh to support there are other more formal learning activities and even a university library is a completely different thing to what it was mm. 10 years ago. And especially relevant in that living room concept as for a university library because the students are living in student accommodation, especially in the era of dog boxes, which are now not permitted under our better apartment design standards, thankfully. Yeah, no, that's a great point. RMIT particularly, you know, it's sort of big international student Urban campus, right? Urban the campus, you know, a lot of those students staying in a very tight student accommodation, often to save money, uh, sharing their rooms. Um, where the rooms are so small, you know, you're basically sitting on your bed with a laptop <laughs> to do your work. So when we renovated that RMIT library, uh, that was definitely proposed by initially by the university and then by us in design terms, as spaces where particularly international students could just spend their evenings in because their actual accommodation was so substandard. People people really know when they receive a really good building from the institution or from the community they're part of. They're incredibly grateful for that. But, but when there's... Bad design people also absolutely know it too, and then there's no benefit to their community. Yeah, it's, uh, can't think of any. I blot bad design out of my memory <laughs> banks. No, Alana. of course it's it's more. I think it's more about the experience that that people have and the 
the power and importance of civic architecture and public buildings specifically because it gives a place for people that don't have perhaps anywhere to go, anywhere to enjoy or luxuriate in that, in that same activity, to, to have that place to come to. And that always give, gives me pause, that, that idea that you, you can give a living room to stay, to run with it, to stay with the um, ex- example. Oh, well, Dan Young 100% fits within that. To thousands of within, people within at once. Within that idea. You know, it's a safe space for an extraordinarily diverse community and, and uh, Spring Valley you've talked about before doing exactly the same thing. I want to pivot to ask you about your time as president of the Institute of Architects. What was the Institute interested in at that point? What were some of the um, things you were advocating for? Uh, yeah, I, well, I, I'd served on the Victorian, so-called Victorian chapter of the Institute of Architects for a few years and uh, they were looking for Victorian candidates to put their hand up to be nationally elected, so I was fortunate to get elected in uh, the early 2000s and then I was fortunate to be uh, asked to be, well, be elected as national president. Um, and there were really three or four things. I mean, the Institute of Architects is like 8,000 members. It's the peak body for architectural design in Australia, along with other various bodies. So advocacy is a key part of that role. So I was fortunate to be able to do some sometimes effective advocacy on some issues, uh, and certainly in the print media. You know, we, we got some pretty good runs on the board, but I had three or four things I tried to do. I mean, you can't do too much because it's only for a year, but... It's a volunteer position as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, you're only there by dint of your practice partners agreeing to uh, let you off the leash from the practice for those 12 months to be able to do it. It's not it's not a full-time job, but it's a, you know, it's a very job that takes a lot of commitment. So some of the things I initiated were at the bigger scale... Australian architecture's recommitment to the Venice Biennale. For your listeners, Venice Biennale is like, you know, everyone says it's like the Design Olympics or something. But uh, Australia has a pavilion um, in Venice for exhibiting. That was still the old pavilion, wasn't it, before DCM opened there in 2016? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was designed, well, initially as a partnership between John Andrews and Philip Cox, but then the ultimate one was uh, by Philip Cox. But uh, it regularly hosted the Art Biennale, you know, which is every two years in architecture in the off year. But Australian architecture hadn't been exhibited for 20 years or more. It had just lapsed and there was no commitment. So we were able to get that commitment up, which at least gets Australian architecture in a global conversation. Um, and probably the other thing on a national level, uh, at the time there was quite a bit of debate still debated about how to improve housing in remote Indigenous communities. So I was able to do some work as national president with, um, you know, then some emerging Indigenous architects and other experts in the in the field and, uh, you know, did some positive advocacy, got a couple of those members on the Prime Minister's task force uh, when Kevin Rudd was elected subsequently and... Uh, 
well, I'd like to say it made a difference, at least it got the conversation going because uh, the conversation needs to keep going because a lot of that uh, housing is still absurdly grim and it's grim and being delivered by governments and it shouldn't be. Absolutely. And Lions worked on a project for Indigenous housing and it was a remediation, like a repair project. Yeah, two or three years, two or three years ago we were asked by a group in uh, Arnhem Land to look at some housing models for them. So they're a great organisation. They're the biggest employer of Indigenous people in Northern Territory. They've got about 1,600 employees. That includes a construction company called Bullmack Construction. So they were bidding to build 87 houses in Gallowinka, which is uh, Elko Island uh, in eastern Arnhem Land. And the houses are these standard government houses and they are, well, an arch- any architect would think they're appalling but any Indigenous person moving into them will also think they're appalling, like they have no... Cultural relevance Cultural appropriateness. All. You know, they're all built out of brickwork without eaves, they're hot boxes, you know, it's all crazy. So we were asked if we would do some alternative designs that they could put to the government um, and maybe even build out of the 87 houses that proposed to be built, build two or three at the start, and if they could be built at the same cost and they're better and everyone thought they were good, why wouldn't you just carry on? But once again, it fell on deaf bureaucrat ears and uh, sadly went nowhere. You're, you're a very big advocate for Indigenous engagement in architecture and in these sorts of projects. I'm mindful of the time, but maybe just quickly you might want to share with us what, what are some of the projects that Lions is working on at the moment that is supporting communities at a grassroots level? Yeah, sure. Uh, I should say I'm interested because uh, I don't think you can be a citizen in modern Australia without engaging with it, sadly. Spot on, yeah. 60% of my fellow citizens would disagree with that idea based on the referendum. You certainly can't be an architect in modern (laughs) Australia. So you're a citizen first, then you're an architect second, really, in everything you do as an architect. So you've got to be engaged, in my view. Uh, We try and be engaged within the practice. Uh, We have made it um, important to our design thinking, particularly in collaborating with Indigenous communities, traditional owners, elders in uh, lands that we're building our projects and indeed working directly with Indigenous designers and architects. So at the moment we're doing uh, the renovations to the Koori Heritage Trust here, which is peak cultural body for Koori communities in uh, Victoria. Uh, we did some work for them a few years ago. They're in Federation Square, if any of your listeners are ever there. It's about to be opened at Christmas time. They're taking over the whole of the um, building, one of the buildings in Fed Square. Much better use for that building than demolishing and turning into an Apple store. Way better, yeah. And it was always there in front of them to do it and... Fortunately, everyone's woken up and it's happening. And so that's like working with the Koori community and also working with Indigenous Architect uh, with us to develop that project. And on the flip side, we're working directly with communities in the Kimberley at the moment um, on some really interesting systemic reform of education in remote communities. And hopefully we're about to get one of those projects started construction around Christmas time and, and uh, yeah, that's exciting. 
fingers crossed. Especially because for, for us in architecture, we continue. The process continues, the work we're doing continues, the our reconciliation action plan continues. Yeah. But we're, st- we're still going to keep doing this work. But you'll be pleased to know even on that project, the question of procurement and innovation is still a live issue, Alana. Very good. As we speak. <laughs> Very good. I'm always glad to hear that, Kerry. Well, I'm mindful of the time. Let's wrap up. I want to ask my last question, and that's what gives you hope? What gives me hope? In architectural terms or personally or both? Both. Dubbed yourself in with that one. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, personally, I have to say, what gives me hope is, well, people your age, like my children, are three, incredible children, 31, 29, 27, like their engagement with community is powerful, much more powerful than mine was. I've had to teach myself. Uh, so I think what gives me hope is there and their generation making positive, continuing to make positive change. So architecturally, I don't know, it's probably a cliche, is it, to say every time you do a new building that you think you've designed pretty well, that gives you hope that architecture makes a difference and and uh, and if you see people using a project well, then uh, that does give me hope and hope uh, and you know, yeah hope that good change can happen through good design it's very slow it's very true but very slow time scales isn't it architectural time is much slower than most people can imagine especially on these huge projects well as you would know Alana we have one project that we're doing in the office which is a big renovation of the Iron Air Hospital up in East Melbourne, which we've been working on, I think, for 11 years. I can't imagine so that. Yeah, it takes time. Can't imagine that. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, Kerry. It's a pleasure, Alana. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hello, I'm Mark Evans from Rose Tattoo and previously ACDC, and you're listening to Radio Karim. Stay tuned.